we're going to look at today, Paul is uh, trying to help this church to understand why he's writing to them, his motivation behind it, which is his love for them in Christ. And here I'd like you to introduce you to our wonderful reader, James. You'll need a microphone. Thank you so much. Right, the reading is from Colossians. You'll find it um, on page 1871 if you've got the big print, otherwise 1182. And it's chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Marvellous, thank you. Can you just put it on there? Um, so I don't know about you, but the first time I read through um, that, my reaction mostly was, huh, what? <laughs> um, Paul's always um, amazing, and his theology is very rich and deep, but it's not always easy to get hold of at one reading. So today, rather than going through the whole of that passage, I'm going to focus on the first sentence to try and find out what he was talking about and what we can learn from him. So I'm just going to read that first sentence out again. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. So for me, I found that this um, verse raises five questions that you have to be able to answer before you can understand what he is saying. And the first question is, what suffering is Paul facing? Well, we know that he's writing from jail, so that's one area of suffering. But we also know from 2 Corinthians that he has received 40 lashes minus one five times, something that often led to death. He's been beaten with rods three times. He's been pelted with stones. He's been shipwrecked three times. He's spent a whole night and day in the open ocean. And he's been constantly on the move and in danger from bandits, Gentiles, Jews, and from false believers. So Paul is clearly familiar with suffering. The second question that springs to mind is, why does Paul say he's suffering for them, given that he's never even actually met them? So in truth, from at least one perspective, Paul's suffering is self-inflicted. If he hadn't insisted on taking the good news to the Gentiles, he wouldn't be in jail. 
In fact, it's very unlikely that he would have suffered in any way at all. He's only being persecuted because he insists on telling the good news to the Gentiles. And the reason he persists is that he knows that if he doesn't, it's very unlikely that they will get to hear the good news at all. So it's more reason, it's more reason, <sighs> so it's more, more than reasonable for Paul to say he is suffering for them. So let's go on to the next seemingly most problematic question that this verse raises. What does Paul mean when he says, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards Christ's afflictions? Now, it appears as if he's saying that what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient and he's making up for Christ's lack of suffering. Surely that can't be right. We know that Jesus drank the cup of suffering and all the dregs. And what's more, just before dying on the cross, he declared, it is finished. Not, it is almost finished, but don't worry because Paul will be coming along to finish, finish off what I didn't get around to do. So rest assured, there was and is nothing lacking in Christ's sacrificial death for salvation. When Paul speaks about filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's not speaking about the suffering that Christ endured at his death, but the sacrifice and suffering that Christ endured during his life as a demonstration of God's love for us. Christ was the suffering servant spoken of in the Isaiah passages. The entire way he lived his life was as a sacrificial outpouring. For the love of us, he gave up hope of all the things that we all wish for, such as a comfortable life, a roof over our head, a reliable income, a wife or husband, children, annual holidays, and I could go on. Instead, he deliberately chose a life of poverty and persecution in order to visibly demonstrate the power of God's love for his people. His entire life was a love offering to mankind, which culminated in him giving up the last thing he had to offer, his life. Likewise, Paul has lived his life as a love offering for the Gentiles, ensuring that they are able to hear the good news, no matter what the cost is to him. So when Paul speaks about filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in Christ's afflictions, He's speaking about doing the one thing that Jesus can no longer do after his death and resurrection. And that's to be present in the flesh in order to demonstrate God's love for his people. Not just by his words, because words can be cheap, but by the way he lives his life, daily sacrificing his needs and desires for their sake and being prepared to suffer for them that they might receive God's blessing and eternal life. In other words, Paul sees his own suffering as the in-person presentation of Christ's suffering for the Gentiles. Which leads us neatly on to the penultimate question that this verse raises. What motivates this sacrificial show of love? Is Paul trying to grow the number of his followers and build his personal empire? Or is his motivation to increase the number of disciples and build the kingdom of God? The answer is found at the end of the sentence. Paul is suffering for the sake of the church. 
He's not trying to build his own fan base. It's not a matter of bums on seats. But he is trying to build the body of Christ to grow the kingdom of, of God as God had commissioned him to do. And he goes on to explain how seriously he takes this task. I've become a servant of the church by the commission of God. And for this cause, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ provides me with. Paul is crystal clear about the call on his life to share the good news, about the urgency of this mission, and about the joy that awaits him at the end of the journey. As regards to what he says about suffering, it's easy to see why Paul understands his suffering to be the unfortunate byproduct of telling the Gentiles the good news, because he understands that suffering is to be expected in this world. Jesus warned his followers many times that discipleship demands sacrifice. He never hid the cost of following him. In John 16, he tells his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. In Jesus' day, a cross wasn't just a symbol of pain and suffering, it was the symbol of death. What was Jesus was saying to his followers it was that we need to put to death our own plans and desires and turn our lives over to him, doing his will every day. Jesus wasn't just calling his disciples to believe in him, but to commit their whole lives to him. He specifically said, anybody who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. However, the remaining elephant in the room of a question is, how can he possibly say that he rejoices in suffering for them? I have to say that in, in my suffering, the first reaction I come up with is not rejoicing. But I think there are four reasons why Paul says this. The first reason I would like to suggest is that he understands that our trials are temporary. Ultimately, nothing can thwart God's plans. The enemy may feel he's backed us into a corner, but God is like a judo ninja warrior. As the enemy launches his attack on us, the Lord uses the enemy's weight against him and slam dunks him on the ground. Think of the cross. The enemy intended it to bring an end to the kingdom of God once and for all. But instead, this means of destruction became, became the gateway into heaven, the greatest victory ever won. Kaboom. Equally, Paul, Paul's incarceration is, in jail is no doubt intended to stop him spreading the good news. It's the, it is, however, the very reason that he's writing a letter rather than going to see them in person. And if he had gone to see them in person, we would have no letter. And these letters have spread way beyond Colossae. They've gone throughout the entire world and throughout the centuries, spreading the gospel. God can turn these situations upside down. 
The second reason I would like to suggest that Paul rejoices in his suffering is because he understands that God uses our tribulations to strengthen us through building our perseverance, character, faith, and hope. The third reason Paul rejoices is because he sees the future joy set before him. Hebrews 12 teaches, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus saw the joy before him, you and me with him for eternity. And so he was able to endure the cross and scorn its shame. Equally, Paul sees the joy set before him, the Gentiles joining God's family in heaven for eternity. And so he's able to endure his suffering and scorn the shame of being in jail. And the fourth reason I'd like to suggest that Paul rejoices is because he understands that a call to ministry is a call to life in all its fullness. Personally, I don't believe that either Jesus or Paul were miserable people because I think there is great joy in doing the thing that God has called you to do. It's how we discover life in all its fullness. People often tell Jackie Pullinger how brave she is for working in the slums, ministering to heroin addicts, and even allowing them to live in her home with her. But she insists that she isn't brave. She loves it. Her heart lights up every time she enters into the slums to serve her people. Because God's given her a deep love for them. And John Kirkby, who came and spoke from Christians Against Poverty last week, and if you didn't hear him, I'm just giving my own personal recommendation that you have a listen to the talk, because it was so inspiring. But he had clearly suffered an awful lot in order to establish this incredible ministry. And yet he spoke of his deep joy in seeing all God had done. And personally, I don't believe this is just a Christian principle. The other week, James and I were watching a television program um, with, in which Ben Fogel interviewed Jane Lowes, a vet from Tyneside, who quit working as a vet in England in order to help Sri Lanka's street dogs. And I thought you might have, like to have a look at it too. Before we actually look at it, I apologize already. It's, it's not downloaded brilliantly well, but hopefully you'll be able to get enough from it. The first clip just gives you an explanation of what she's doing, and the second clip is of her explaining why she thinks it's worth it. So, uh, I'm sorry about that. I hope you could grasp what she was saying. But, you know, she sacrificed an awful lot to go out there, and if you watch the program, it's, it's, she just works all the time to save these dogs who were walking around with the most horrendous um, illnesses and things and it's so inspiring to see her but you can see from her face how full of joy she is it's, she's not looking like somebody who's sacrificed a lot she looks like somebody who's living life in all its fullness and and that's what I suppose for me is what I take about Paul Paul sacrificed a lot he really did suffer a great deal but he was doing the thing that God created him to do. And I suspect he was full of joy. So when he says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. He really means it. 
He's fulfilled in his life and takes joy in the fact that he's able to demonstrate Christ's love for them, not just in words, but in actions too. Because that is the mission that he's been created to fulfill. And that is his unique part in God's great big plan, to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So what can we take from this? Well, I'm going to suggest there are three things that we can take from it. Firstly, love looks like something. If we really want the people we encounter to encounter God's love for them, we need to be willing to demonstrate it through dying to our own personal life goals and pouring out our lives as a love offering for them. Secondly, self-sacrifice and joy are inextricably linked. Paul sacrificed and suffered a lot in order to fulfill his calling, but he was also familiar with joy and life in all its fullness. And self-sacrifice and joy seem strange bedfellows, but they are intimately connected. And the third and final point I want to bring out of this is that we need to prioritize obedience, patience, and perseverance. In God's economy, success is not marked by money, fame, or glory, but by faithful obedience. I'm going to say that again. In God's economy, success is not marked by money, fame, or glory, but by faithful obedience. Even if you can't see any fruit, if you are being obedient, the, the size of the harvest is up to God, and you know from the Bible that it will come, even if it doesn't come straight away. Many great ministries have made unpromising starts and have only been able to flourish because of the obedience, patience, and perseverance of those leading them. The ministry of a man beaten up and thrown in jail hardly looks fruitful at the time, but we know in retrospect that Paul's harvest has been greater than almost any other man on earth apart from Jesus. When God asked John Wimber to preach every Sunday that God heals today and to offer prayer at the end of the service, he faithfully obeyed. But nobody was healed for a whole year. He was inundated with letters of complaint and people were leaving his church in their droves but he continued because he knew that obedience is more important than popularity. And when Jackie Pullinger went to Hong Kong, she sacrificed everything she had in order to show God's love for the people of the walled city. But for the first year, she saw no fruit at all. But she kept going regardless because her love for them was not dependent on results. There is nothing that any of us can do in the Lord's name which is in vain. If we are obeying God's call to do our unique part, which we personally have been designed for in God's big picture, even if we can't see any fruit, it's still worth it. You need to know that sooner or later, the harvest will come. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.